This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. Hey, folks, have any of you been receiving something in the mail from the Voter Participation Center or the Center for Voter Information? If so, you're not alone. Bridge Magazine Online has written that the postcard is an example of what experts call social pressure mail that can shock recipients but is considered effective and is being widely employed this year by third-party organizations seeking to boost voter turnout in battleground states like Michigan. For instance, the mail piece might say this, and I'm looking at one right now, quote, vote in person today in big letters, and beneath it it says, who you vote for is private, but whether you vote is a matter of public record. When we follow up after the election, we hope to see that you cast your ballot this election. Well, that sounds a little threatening to me and to many others who've received it. But the CEO of a group called the Center for Voter Information, which mails out these pieces, says this, quote, social pressure mailings can be shorthanded as peer pressure in an envelope. They've been proven to be the most impactful at getting voters to the polls to vote, unquote. The messages are a variation on the group's national campaign to mail 2 million postcards to Michigan voters this cycle. The mail piece says, quote, This is a nonpartisan message that does not ask or encourage anyone to place and refers only to follow up regarding the decision to vote, not to specific votes cast. Organizations use it not, unquote. Now, the Center for Voter Information is a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. It's true that they don't encourage voting for specific candidates on any partisan ticket, but... Remember this, the bigger the turnout, and you've seen this everywhere in this fall season heading toward the election on November 3rd, the bigger the turnout, the more it favors Democrats. So these mail pieces have inundated Michiganders with official-looking mailings that compare their voting frequency to that of their neighbors, and they assign recipients a, quote, voting score, unquote, and remind them that, quote, how you vote is private, but how you vote is a matter also of public record, unquote. Even Democratic elected officials argue that the letters are, quote, creepy, in the words of Ingham County Clerk Barb Byron a Democrat, quote, it's trying to shame voters in their right. Now, this is one little issue that has been going on, but, you know, there are a whole bunch of other questions, obviously, this year that we've never really seen before in past elections. For instance, are we settled on firearms at the polls right now? 
Attorney General Dana Nessel is appealing to the state Supreme Court a ruling that they cannot be prohibited. We may know the answer to Dana Nessel's request by the time you listen to this. How about Election Day challengers? There was a settlement late last week by state and judge and plaintiff that observers can be within six feet of precinct workers in the polling place. How about people who have been requesting ballot applications online? Well, a court says they can. How many people do this? How about ballots, mail-in, et cetera? Do they have to be received by 8 p.m. on election night? How long do poll workers have a chance to count them? Was the 10 hours that the legislature gave poll workers to open and prepare envelopes to be counted on November 2nd, the day before the election, enough? What about attempts to curtail vote harvesting by paying drivers to round up voters and or ballots and take them to the polls? A judge has ruled that that cannot be done in Michigan. What about courts ruling that people have to pay postage to mail in ballots? rather than have the state pay to have the ballots mailed in? How about percentage of the vote that is going to be mail-in in Michigan? What percentage? Some say as high as 60%, maybe more, will be mail-in this year. That would be an all-time record. What about turnout in this election? It was $4.8 million in 2016. What will it be this year? As high as $6 million? Some observers think it will. When will we know results in Michigan? Can returns be announced without all mail-in votes being counted? So these are all questions that we're going to try and get answered later in this show in the next half hour by one or more of our guests. Now, by the way, what is on the ballot Tuesday? Let me remind people that in Michigan we have really the longest number of contests, let's call it that, rather than the longest ballot, I don't want to scare anybody, in Michigan of any state in the country in a present going on in Michigan, believe it or not. I'm just going to run down the list here. We have president at the top, that's one. We have a U.S. senator, that's one. We have 14 U.S. House of Representative contests. We have 110 state representative contests. We have eight contests for state educational boards, like the State Board of Education, University of Michigan Board of Regents, MSU Board of Trustees, and the Wayne State University Board of Governors. We have two seats up this year on the state Supreme Court out of the seven justiceships that exist. And beyond that, we have over 200 contests for judgeships in Michigan, Court of Appeals, Circuit Court, District Court, Probate Court. We have over 600 countywide elected officials on the ballot this year. Those are your prosecutors, your clerks, your sheriffs, your treasurers, maybe drain commissioners in many counties. County commissioners, we have over six hundred county commissioners spread over 83 counties. They are all on the ballot this year. Township officials, this is the big one. We have now in each one of those townships, there is a township board, supervisor, clerk, 
treasurer and at least two trustees. If it's a charter township, there are four trustees. So that's either five or seven township officers in each of 1,242 townships. That is a total of some 6,500 township board members that are elected this year. School boards, beginning in 2012, eight years ago, the legislature put all school board elections on the ballot in the general election. Remember, they used to be in May or June, and hardly anybody voted in them. But now they are on the ballot along with all these other offices. What about library boards? They're actually on the ballot in some counties. Road commissioners are on the ballot in some counties. So you total all that up, and you are looking at over 11,000 offices that are on the ballot this year. Now, what about other things that we might have questions about going into this election and particularly coming out of it? Which political party, Republicans or Democrats, is better for the economy? Election day by the numbers. Uh, Why voters support either Joe Biden or Donald Trump? What is the income that has been earned by Joe Biden in his speeches? What if Donald Trump or Joe Biden wins? What would it mean to voters' wallets? What's the difference? Who are the most powerful voters among the states, like the top 10 states, powerful voters, and number 20 on that list? We can go on and on. There are all sorts of questions, but we're going to try and get some answers to these questions in just a minute. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned. We are fortunate to have on the other line with us uh, Jill Gonzalez of Wallet Hub which is a personal finance website with free consumer tools such as its wallet literacy quiz. Jill Gonzalez, let me ask you, uh, you came out with a bunch of surveys and studies just in the past couple of weeks that are really kind of fascinating. Um, My first question is, did you do one on like which political party is best for the economy? Well, we looked at what a Trump presidency would look like, what a Biden presidency would look like uh, for consumers' bottom line. Uh, So I wouldn't say there's one that's necessarily better. I think it depends what your wallet already looks like. Uh, But, yeah, we break that down uh, completely, everything from personal taxes to corporate taxes to health care, et cetera. You also had a finding on – the main reason voters support either Biden or Trump. What did you come up with there? Yeah, we took a survey to see essentially uh, what people's reasoning was. And it was interesting. We saw that uh, a lot of consumers, when it comes to supporting, 56% of voters say the main reason they support Biden is that he's not Trump, compared to about 20% of voters who say the opposite. Now, Joe Biden has said he's never really earned that much as a U.S. senator, doesn't have that much income. But you had a finding on the amount he's earned, apparently, from speeches. I don't know over what period of time. What did you come up with there? Yeah, we looked at both candidates when it comes to uh, speeches here. We looked at their income uh, separately as well. Uh, So we see that Joe Biden is 
worth $9 million, uh, and he's made uh, hundreds of thousands from speeches, which is is pretty consistent with, I would say, a lot of other political leaders. Yeah, I think uh, you say he has an average speaking fee of $128,000, and he's got a total speech income over time of $5.2 million. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, let me ask you, um, most powerful voters among the states, um, I'm not sure what powerful voters means. Maybe you can explain that, that you've got a top 10 states and the bottom 10 states, and I think Michigan is number 20. Yeah, when we're talking about powerful voters, we look at the win probability, we look at both what it looks like for the presidential and the Senate elections, and we divide that by the population. Typically, the smaller the population, the more powerful your individual vote is. So, in other words, you mean the voters in that particular state are powerful if their state helps shape the national verdict, let's say, on the presidential election? Is that what you mean? No, that's not what we mean. So, we're just looking at, like, individual votes here. So, states like California and New York, your individual vote is not as powerful because there is a bigger population there. States like Alaska, Iowa, your individual vote counts a little bit more, weighs a little bit more uh, because of both the win probabilities right now and the smaller population of the state. So it doesn't mean that if your state is like the very smallest in population, let's say like Wyoming, that necessarily you're the most powerful, but it helps make you more powerful than if you're in a state with a big population. Is that what you're saying? Correct, yes. Yeah. Well, how about racial minorities shaping future elections? What did you find there? As far as uh, the states where racial minorities are being heard the most, are getting to the polls the most, uh, that's where we do see states like uh, California and New York doing a little bit better than uh, more rural and more Midwestern states. When you have a list, which I think you've put out in the last couple of weeks, saying best and worst representation by state on Election Day, what does that mean? You have a top 10 list of states. Michigan is number 32, kind of like right in the middle. Uh, What does best and worst representation mean? So it's most and least representative. So essentially it's looking at the states where uh, the actual People who are getting out and voting represent the electorate the most. So, in some states, we might see uh, a, a more, we might see a higher percentage of whites voting as, than blacks in a significant amount. Even though, when we're looking at the state population, we see the numbers are much more even. So that means that something's happening where uh, certain populations are not either making it to get registered or making it to the polls. What about? Uh, the other factoids you've had here um, in your most recent study, like uh, plus 3.7 trillion, I think, projected change in real GDP, gross domestic product during the first four years of a Biden presidency versus how much it would be for Donald Trump. What did you come up with there? Yeah, so that would be 3.7 percent as far as real GDP growth. And who and what the economy would look like under either president? I think a lot of that has to do with COVID nineteen response moving forward. So you had three point seven trillion dollars 
for Biden and $2.8 trillion for Trump. Is that correct? Correct, yes. Then you say 15 states have new laws doing what? 15 states uh, have new laws that could make it more difficult to vote this year, whereas 12 states have actually expanded absentee or mail voting eligibility this year. And then you have 12 states have expanded absentee mail voting, as you say, eligibility. And you say 35 states uh, have voter ID requirements. Is that correct, out of 50? Yes. And then you've got what? About two-thirds of Americans say it's likely that the pandemic will disrupt the presidential election, and nearly half of Americans expect to have some type of difficulties casting a ballot. And then you got 79% registered voters say what? Almost 80% of registered voters say the economy is most important to their vote in 2020, followed by health care, Supreme Court appointments, and the coronavirus outbreak. Yeah, I think you got health care 68%, Supreme Court appointments 64%, coronavirus outbreak 62%, right? Right. So what else have you come up with that you think is significant in all these studies? Um, You know, for instance, let's say when you talk about best and worst representation, best overall representation, you're you're saying uh, Maryland is first out of all 50 states. Now, again, what does that exactly mean? That means that when Maryland, essentially, when we see Maryland results, That is most representative of the population living in Maryland. So that means that people able to get registered, the people going to the polls, very much mimic its actual adult population. Whereas in other states, due to new voting laws, due to voter ID laws, uh, some of the population is suppressed and is not actually representative of the actual electorate there. I got it. And I think Michigan is, as I said before, 32nd on this list from 1 to 50. Look, Jill Gonzalez, these are all very interesting facts and statistics that I think voters like to hear about going in to vote on November 3rd. Those that are going to vote in person, because here in Michigan, it looks like 60 percent of our vote at least has already been cast or is being cast right now mail in. That's an all-time record in Michigan. Thank you so much, Jill Gonzalez from WalletHub, which is a personal finance website. Go look for it online. Thank you, Jill Gonzalez. Anytime. We'll be back in a minute with still more. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the line with us our go-to person when it comes to elections, and that is State Representative Ann Bolin from the 42nd House District. She's a Republican from Brighton. Representative Bolin, thanks for being our guest. Yes, thank you for having me. Okay, I, I just want to ask you, I think you were a township clerk for 16 years And yet we seem to have so much more turbulence and so many more issues surrounding voting this year than I can ever remember. It seems to me like you've had more in the last two than in the 16 years you were township clerk. Is that correct or not? Well, I think in part it seems like it is, but I think it's really not because we've had so many changes, but we've had a lot of uh, 
poor messaging, uh, misinformation, calling things something that they're not. Mix that in with the political climate and uh, our first major election without with no reason AV uh, and COVID-19 and it's you know there's a lot of chaos and I find that much of it is unnecessary. I certainly as a former clerk have a lot of faith in our local clerks. They're doing an outstanding job, but it does not help when we have some of our top election administrators um, changing things midstream, calling things something that they're not. For example, we are not an early vote state. We're not a vote-by-mail state. We're an absentee voter state. Things like that. They create a lot of unnecessary confusion. Are we settled on firearms at the polls? What do you think? Well, I, you know, uh, that's not our case, but I do think that, uh, you know, the attorney general is appealing that. Um, I will tell you, my 16 years at clerk, guns were never an issue, firearms in the precincts at all. Isn't the issue really this word brandishing we keep reading? I mean, in other words, I mean, if somebody showed up at the polls uh, with uh, open carry firearm, but, you know, not brandishing it, not flashing it around, not threatening anybody with it. I mean, maybe that's happened. And of course, people could have concealed carry. But when you use the word brandishing, that's what scares people, right? I think that is true. But I also think, why are we making that the message and trying to incite people? We know this is an issue that creates great division. And we need to be using our soapboxes to ensure that every eligible voter can vote independently, freely, secretly, safely, and security. And we've not had a problem in the past. There are all kinds of ways of uh, considering what voter harassment, intimidation. We haven't had these problems. Clerks are trained in this. They train the poll workers. Um, I think we should just really stick to the basics and how people can obtain their ballot. You need to bring your photo ID or sign the affidavit. You're not in possession of it. You know, be patient that you may have lines. Thank a poll worker and that we're going to have proper PPE uh, to make sure that everybody, is, you know, can keep healthy distance and vote. What about election day challengers? Apparently there was a settlement uh, this week by the state with a judge and the plaintiff that observers can be within six feet of poll precinct workers. Uh, what about that? Has that ever been an issue with you? It has never been an issue. And the law clearly states that a challenger in the pro- at the processing table cannot interfere with the poll worker's ability to administer and run the election. So it has always been uh, instructed to challengers and to poll workers that challengers are there, they have a job to do, and let them do that. You can work in partnership. We want to make sure we run an election with high integrity. And part of that is being able to view the poll list, et cetera. You cannot be disruptive. You've never been able to, and I, you certainly can't moving forward be disruptive either. How about people requesting ballot applications online? As a court ruled this past week, they could. Um, how many people really do that? Is that really an issue? Well, it has become more of an issue with this election because the very aggressive approach that the Secretary of State has taken and allowing some outside organizations even to be collecting these, uh, pulling in your electronic signature from the qualified voter file, basically from your driver's license and attaching it. So, um, you know, with COVID, people are doing more things electronically and online, and so... um, you know, that, that's something new that clerks have to deal with, where in the past we really didn't have the 
volume that we have now. Representative Boland, you have been a member of the legislature that this fall, I think, passed a new law that gives clerks 10 hours on the day before the election, November 2nd, uh, to open and prepare uh, ballots to be counted uh, the next day. Do you think that's enough time? Do all ballots uh, have to be received by 8 p.m. election night? Uh, How long do poll workers have a chance to count them? What do you think? Okay, so uh, all ballots must be returned with a signature by 8 p.m. on election night. That is a check and balance that has been in our law that should stay in our law, in my opinion. The early processing, this will be a pilot project. There's going to be this influx. Um, We have some challenges with COVID, with distancing and things like that. But I do not think clerks necessarily need more time. In the primary, we had jurisdictions that were able to process 18,000 ballots in 27 hours, and we had another jurisdiction able to process over 50,000 ballots in seven hours. So why do we have these differences? And I think some of it is uh, in some of the procedures that are being used internally and in the the processing in the actual counting board. Um, This early processing has put some good chain of custody measures into it that we uh, have not seen in the past. So we'll see. Certainly this is uh, election is going to be a big one. Uh, It's going to be important, but I think that our ballots will be able to be counted in a very timely fashion. And uh, I have full faith in the poll workers and the clerks, and we've given them a lot more resources. We certainly could have given them more resources in the way of equipment, um, but we have spent it on mass mailings, uh, voter applications, voter registrations, and making this big push. Look, I want to see every eligible eligible voter in the state of Michigan vote. 100% turnout would be fantastic, awesome. But let's look at the reality. We're not going to have that right now. And our focus really needs to be on running a smooth election with the highest level of integrity and voter confidence and candidate confidence. And that includes making sure they have the proper equipment, equipment that doesn't break down, the you know high-speed letter openers, things like that. What about what is called vote harvesting, which is maybe including paying drivers to round up voters and or ballots and take them to the polls or to the clerks? Uh, this week, I think a court ruled that could not be done in Michigan. The Democrats cried foul, said we're the only state that does not allow this. What about that? We are not the only state that doesn't allow that. And let's look at this. Why are we trying these exhaustive measures? They're trying to make election law. It's sue and settle. The legislature's responsibility is to make the laws. We have sound election law in the state of Michigan. It has worked. We have a lot of checks and balances. And we ought to be pushing and encouraging outside interests, and administrators, let's follow the law. It works. It has worked. Michigan has not been on the front page or the headlines of the news uh, the day after election. We've got this. We can do this. We have done it. We will do it. Let's let the clerks do their job. Let's support them and uh, not send confusing messages to voters and quit giving changes in direction and moving the goalposts for our local clerks. The court ruled this week, I believe, that people should pay their own postage to mail in their ballots rather than have the state do it. Uh, What about that? Has that ever been an issue? Oh, no, absolutely. Voters have many options. Let's remember, voters vote. You vote locally. Okay, you don't have your polling location, your local clerk's location. Most people are driving by it. 
regularly. So if you obtain an absent voter ballot, you can return it personally to the drop box, to the local clerk's office. You can go into the clerk's office, file an application, receive your ballot that day, vote in the clerk's office, and return it right there. No postage is necessary. In the past, what happens when ballots are returned without postage? Local clerks in the post office, they keep an account, and they send the local clerk a bill after the election. And it's never been a high dollar amount. Most people will really want to return their ballot in person. Right. Listen, I could ask you so many more questions, like what percentage of the vote is going to be mail-in in Michigan? Uh, what is the turnout going to be? When will we know the results? But we don't have time. We're out of time, and we've got this expert, Ann Bolin, and unfortunately, we can't talk any longer. But thank you so much, Representative Ann Bolin, Republican of Brighton, for being our guest. Thank you for having me. Get out and vote. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll be back in a minute with our final guest. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We're back, and we have David Forsmark, who is president and CEO of Winning Strategies, a political consulting firm. He's based in Flushing in Genesee County. David Forsmark. Thanks for being our guest. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. Well, let me just ask you, in general, how do you think things are going to shake out this year in Michigan when all the votes are counted? Well, if anybody gives you a um, too firm of opinion, they're just talking through their hat. But there are some things that counter the narrative, and in, in, in my experience, uh, one is I in, in swing in swing districts where people are on the doors, they aren't getting. Uh, like Republican candidates in swing districts are are getting aren't getting the bottom is falling out kind of response back from people, and they obviously aren't just knocking hardcore Republican doors in, in those districts, or they wouldn't be able to they wouldn't be knocking on enough doors to win. So that's one thing. The other thing is over the last couple of weeks in in our data, we and we, we we've been showing younger people. Um, especially since the debate, really being turned off by the message of, of shutting things down again. Uh, probably a lot of them work in industries that, that are hit the hardest because, because that's what you do when you're working with your college or whatever. Um, and also just because they're not, they know that they're in a, you know, a, gr- a group that's not uh, that affected by the virus but I think, uh, and then I think Gretchen's big, uh, well, the health department, quote unquote, big uh, announcement yesterday might might firm that up a little bit, um, and really drive that home that uh, the dark winter is coming uh, with with them in control. What about races in your neck of the woods, David Forsmark, like Genesee County, uh, Saginaw County, Bay County, where Donald Trump did? pretty well uh, in 2016, and John James, for that matter, did fairly well two years ago. Is the trend in that direction or not? I don't think it's changed any. There's no evidence from people on the ground that it's changed any. You see a lot more, actually, you see more Trump enthusiasm. Um, Now, that might just be, you know, that's the vocal people. Incumbency gets you uh, people willing to be more outspoken, but if you remember way back in the day, Kyle was the bedrock, the, 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 
the northern Genesee County townships, other than Forrest, were the bedrock for, for making a seat Democrat. And Trump took those, and I think it was one of the biggest swings uh, uh, areas in the whole count in the whole country. And it doesn't seem to have changed any up there. Uh, if anything, you see you see more signs and all some of that comes with incumbency, like I said. Uh, and Trump smoked in Bay. I mean, he won Bay by seven thousand votes, and um, also Saginaw narrowly. So it doesn't. Nobody's getting feedback like the bottom's dropping out. I remember in 96 when, you know, Bob Dole, when the bottom was dropping out, people knew what it felt like when they were hitting the doors. Uh, none of that's coming back from, from anybody. What about the uh, 48th State House District? That's around Davison, more the eastern side of the uh, incumbent Democrat, Cheryl Kennedy, getting a challenge from Republican David Martin, who's a Genesee County commissioner. And then there's the 96th District in Bay City, uh, Brian Elder, incumbent Democrat, getting him Beeson. Uh, do the Republicans have a chance to win those two seats? Oh, absolutely. Incumbent? Absolutely. Um, it's hard to imagine a worse fit for Cheryl Kennedy than the 48th district. We called doctor and, and likes to lecture people and prove how much smarter she is than everybody. Um, and she, she really is just whatever the governor says uh, must be right. She made fun of people for wanting to open their businesses on her Facebook, she's, you know, they didn't they didn't do a purple candidate in their purple district, uh, or anybody could even make a pretense of it. Uh, whereas Martin, you know, he'd been a Davidson City Councilman for quite a while before he he went out and took that county commission seat under no, he wasn't on anybody's radar. So there's a big, and you know, he's a veteran and all. There's a big contrast there that I think favors him. Um, there's also uh, when you talk Brian Elder, you know, Brian Elder's never been a good vote-getter in Bay, ever. His last primary, he didn't get 50% of the vote, and that was after, in a three-way race, where one of the guys dropped out because of some uh, some family, some big family issues with health and things, and endorsed him. And that guy still got almost 40% as many votes as Elder did. And there was a guy running who was running on the whole... You know, the most woke guy in Bay County, because he thought it'd be a three-way race, and wanted to see if that would could prevail in Bay County in three-way race. And you know, the the, the vote basically went five-three-two. Um, but Brian openly ran against this guy named Don Tilly as being, you know, like I'm the traditional Bay County Democrat, and he's the pinko. And then after the filing deadline for his second. Uh, for his second term, when it was too late for anybody to mount a real challenge to him, Brian Elder went and embraced everything Don Tilly said he was for <laughs> and really, really frosted some, some people. Okay, what about and, Oakland County? Oakland County, where the news isn't as good for Republicans. Do you think the Democrats can really pick up three seats down there in the state house? They could get the majority in the House uh, just in Oakland County. I don't think they'll get three. They've got to run the table. Um, I think the, the they've done a good job of keeping this Julia Pulver under wraps. I mean, she is a serious kook. But, you know, all they've run is I'm a nurse, I'm a nurse, I'm a nurse. Um, but, you know, even if you, if you had a gathering of Bernie supporters, she'd be the one 
way over on the left of even that group. Uh, the Novi seat, I think, is, is – and, and that seat's also been fairly stable. So, I mean, Clint Kesto won it three times. There, there, there hasn't been that much of a demographic change. And if you look at, if you look at uh, you know, Ryan Berman's brother, Tom, there was a 3,000-vote difference between 2016 with Trump on the top of the ticket and, uh, and, and, and then the Whitmer shooty race. So I, you know, I wonder there if if some of the enthusiasm isn't coming from, uh, you know, them thinking 2018 is the new norm. Now let me ask you, uh, switching gears a little bit about the Supreme Court. Now that is really a puzzle, as you know. Everybody runs yeah. as a nonpartisan, and you've got the Democratic nominees, Bridget Mary McCormick, the Chief Justice, and her running mate for an open seat. Elizabeth Welsh, an attorney in private practice, uh, running against uh, Republicans Mary Kelly and uh, Brock Swartzel, who's a court of appeals judge. And then you've got a Susan Hubbard, who's a Wayne County Circuit judge, also on the ticket. Remember, these people are not identified as Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians or Green Party. They're just on the ballot. The only one who has the designation is Bridget Mary McCormick. What do you think about the possibility of the Republicans being able to hold that open seat, the one that Steve Markman is in now and he can't run again because he's reached age 70? Mary Kelly or Brock Swartzel will be the replacement. Do you hear anything about that up there? What what, what sense do you get? Well, you, you see a lot more ads for Kelly um, and Schwartzel. I think <laughs> although the goofiest jingle maybe of all time was Schwartzel for Quartzel, but um, the, the, uh, I mean, it well seems singularly unqualified. I mean, at least it's thin, but I, and, and, you know, Kelly's a, you know, I don't know why, but in Michigan, they like to elect Irish people. Um, I would give Kelly the edge. I don't know about Schwartzel, uh, because you still, you've got only got one open seat in the incumbency designation. Tends tends to tends to uh, work good for people, and she's got the Irish name too. What about John James uh, running for the U.S. Senate against Gary Peters? He's been running better in the polls. A week or so, a couple of polls have come out showing bigger margins with Peters ahead. Do you think John James has a chance to win? Oh yeah, and I don't. I, I've got to tell you, I I basically quit polling. With, with any traditional <laughs> methods, anyway. I, I don't know if you saw uh, Mark Rebner did a poll with his normal methods, and I've, I've used them, and I've averaged about a 2% margin of error over the years. When he showed uh, the Democrat ahead of the Republican in the in the uh, Amash seat by, like, 16 points. Yeah. He said, I'm publishing this, but I don't believe a word of it. Yeah, right. Listen, I, um, I could keep going. We can keep going on and on and on, but unfortunately, we're out of time. It's that okay. fast. Thank you so much. David Porsmark of his own political consulting firm, which is Winning Strategies and Flushing. Thank you, David Porsmark. Great. Thanks, Bill. We'll be back next week to sum up what happened. We'll view the carnage. Tune in. (laughs) 